Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to Straight Talk Live. I am one of your co-hosts today, along with Dennis Golfin. And we are so excited to be with you today. And at a moment where we've been uh, celebrating or the anniversary, the commemoration of the Tulsa massacre that's been going on in our nation right now and that President Biden attended and spoke at, we have the privilege today of having a scholar with us who has written a book about it. And we're going to introduce him in just a moment. But again, I, I hope you appreciate uh, the plethora of expressions, black, white, male, female, Jew, Gentile. I mean, we're like a cornucopia of uh, panelists. Mm -hmm. and, and that is the nature of God, distinct but inseparable, distinct and inseparable. And on this show, we're, uh, one of our aim, aims is to make sure that you understand we believe that the gospel, the Bitharat, is the essential transcendent truth by which we all must embrace. And yet <clears throat> we recognize that, that, that our goal is to speak the truth in love, to love everybody, to love each one, and to love each other's views, appreciate each other's views. And I'm so glad for the panel because we become we are a family now, as far as I'm concerned, and uh, excited today for all of us, and, and especially for Dr. Daniels with us today, and he's going to be sharing. And so, before I go any further, I'm going to turn it over to Dennis. Uh, thank you, Van. Welcome to our show for today. We're welcoming all of our viewers on uh, Facebook and on YouTube and on our podcast. Uh, anchor.fm forward slash talk straight. And so it's a, it's a shame that as we begin the show today, that it's taken us a hundred years to get to this point and have this much attention on uh, what's going on, not only just in Tulsa, but even around the country. I was reading so many uh, things about um, the event and the things that's going on. We're happy to have Dr. Daniel with us today and the rest of our panel so we can just discuss the things um, that are dealing with this and glad even to the point that this particular year is probably the most attention this has ever got. So it is interesting. The first time I was reading that we are, a, a sitting president has visited Tulsa for this event. So it's been um, an exciting time and I think it's very timely that I'll show it, focus on this as we have on other things throughout the time. Uh, Van? Well, yes. Well, I was just looking at our panel. You know, we have uh, Lois and Elaine and Rob Shank and just really appreciate it. And we've got a couple of people missing today. Tom Benz, um, Sterling Lands, not here right at this moment. So we have two other people that should be with us and they may be popping it. I don't know. But uh, when they're not here, we miss them. And, uh, <clears throat> but uh, uh, Dr. Daniel, because this is such a important issue and your book just offers a lot of information, uh, I'm gonna ask that you would introduce yourself. I know that you have a PhD. I know that you run one of the famous places called a library where we learn to do research. Anybody that uh, is an erudite has got to love the library. And so you're from Tulsa, as I understand as well. So why don't you share with the audience what you want us to know? And like I said, you have just written and finished a book that we will be putting up here in a moment. And uh, we want you, and that book is right on time. 
So, uh, Dr. Daniel, if you'll just tell, and then, you know, after you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, I'd like you to also to address quickly, and then we can go into detail, you know, what is the central thesis of what you want to us to know today? What, what do you want us to know and what do you want the audience to understand as well? So Dr. Daniel. Yeah. Thanks everyone. It's uh, it's a joy to be uh, part of this conversation today. Um, so I'm, I'm, basically from Tulsa. I've lived here most of my life and uh, went to school at ORU for my undergraduate and graduate degree. Uh, just recently completed my PhD a couple years ago from Magnum University and Center of Pentecostal Theology. And and um, in 2017, I was appointed here at, at ORU for the uh, director of the Holy Spirit Research Center. And so, which is a, you know, it's a dream job to be able to do research and to, to hang out here in the library and Holy Spirit Research Center uh, dates back to 1962 uh, when Oral Roberts noticed that a lot of denominations weren't archiving their own materials. So we started our own archive here and it's very broad. It's got Pentecostal, Charismatic, Independent, Word of Faith, all kinds of materials in here, Catholic, Charismatic, uh, Lutheran, Episcopal. And, um, <clears throat> and so I spend a lot of time uh, dealing with uh, materials here. It's, it's great. Uh, but I'm a local person. I'm a local Tulsan, even though I live in the suburbs, which you know most most folks do in Tulsa. We have some pretty large suburbs, uh, bedroom communities, and so um, you know my my main research interest has always been Pentecostalism. But I'm a Seventh of God minister, and uh, I was really sort of interested in. Uh, knowing the history of the Assemblies of God in Tulsa, and uh, pretty soon I started to uh, figure out that God was calling me to write something, some sort of history here after I finished my PhD. So I'm, I'm sitting in the right seat, you know, to be able to do that. And, uh, but I had no idea really how ignorant I was of Tulsa's history until I started this project. And uh, so a lot of what's come out in the book has just been my own sort of journey to find out the whole story of uh, Pentecostalism in Tulsa. And that story has some really wonderful highs and some pretty terrible lows. And, uh, but, but the goal um, of writing this book was just to tell the whole story. You know, I was, I was taken by the fact that uh, if you read Pentecostal histories. Uh, there isn't a single Pentecostal history that mentions the Tulsa Race Massacre. And, um, and, you know, because most of them are broad in scope and, you know, that's to be understandable. Um, but uh, equally disturbing is all of the uh, local sort of Pentecostal histories of Oklahoma, both, you know, uh, Pentecostal Holiness, the Assemblies of God, and, you know, um, Pentecostal Assemblies of the World, a lot of the different ones that I've read uh, don't even mention it. And so uh, it was a it was a big task to try to try to just bring some of that to light. So it's a burden God put on my heart a couple of years ago, and uh, it's been a long journey, and I'm glad it's finally here and, and in print. Mm. Well, we are so glad to have you here too, Daniel. And I guess, I, you know, I, I'm sure that the panel will have different questions as you share along here, but uh, the question I personally would like to open up with is that uh, if you had had the opportunity to listen to our show over the last year, we deal, we've dealt a lot with evangelicals and uh, how the black and white church has not been getting along and our ability, our inability to be one uh, mm -hmm. as a witness to our nation at a certain time and the politics between the Republicans and the Democrats. 
And yet at the same time, from reading your book, I guess one of the questions I'd like to start with you is, um, you know, the evangelicals, we know that when we talk about lamenting, uh, empathy for yeah. the uh, black community, the black church, I find I found it through your book, your writings, that you also uh, highlight the fact that uh, the Pentecostals were silent as well in Tulsa. Yeah. Yeah. That, that one side of the track, the whites did not go over to where the blacks were. And yeah. even during the massacre, they blame the blacks for that, what happened yeah. to them. So yeah. if you could kick off a little bit on that subject. Yeah, so I mean, if, so if you're, if you're researching history, you, 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 you find that these, uh, these particular pockets or communities are only just sort of talking about themselves. And you know, at, at some level, that's understandable, right? If I'm, if I'm talking about my own denomination, similar to God, I'm not usually referring to you know, the, the, the other communities at the same time. But what is so strange is that there was so, so, so little lack of you know, familial um, sort of relationship and of people who, like you said, were just literally right across the tracks. Mm -hmm. And so, um, in fact, uh, the very first Pentecostal church that came out of Parham's revival that became the first AG church here in town, um, Fifth and Peoria, uh, you know, that, that church was literally right across the tracks. In fact, the pastor, um, uh, W.T. Gaston, in 1912, lived right across the street from the historic Mount Zion Baptist Church, the one that was burned uh, in the, you know, in the flames and all the, the photos during the race massacre. <clears throat> he lived right across the street. And, and yet still no sense of that there was, you know, there was anything connecting these two communities, you know, uh, that, you know, the, their problems are my problems and my problems are their problems. And, you know, so even a Pentecostal faith, you know, as a marginalized community, um, you know, there was, there seemed to be no sense of, of connection there that were fellow marginalized uh, communities in that, in that sense. And so, you know, that, that was pretty shocking, just that nobody had anything to say. Okay. And so um, as, as, as I, you know, dealt with that and looked at that, you know, the, the silence of the white Pentecostal community seemed to flow out of um just number one i think the, the the whole cultural jim crow uh relationship was there but but i think beyond that it's just this sort of self-sufficiency the white pentecostals felt you know they um they had their own thing going and uh they didn't know anybody in the black community except you know those who shine their shoes or you know held the elevator for them as they were shopping in downtown salsa and so you know, the lack of racial empathy was just really stemming from from that. And of course, you know, there's certainly people involved in the race massacre. Um, I, I didn't find any specific instances, but there's whisperings around Tulsa, particularly in, in Pentecostal churches. Some of my uh, pastor friends are saying, yeah, we, you know, I, I'm pretty sure there were people involved in our church who, who jumped on those cars uh, and uh, drove downtown to, to participate in the destruction. So, mm. you know, these, these sort of racial factors, uh, racism, um, you know, the segregation and, and, and just the feeling that, you know, it's, that's their thing and we have our thing and the two, um, we're not connected and, mm. and we don't know about each other. We don't empathize with each other. And if your community, commi uh, you know, community gets destroyed, 
you know, that, that has no bearing on us. And so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to tell the story and really put the story in the forefront is because, you know, once you know a community and once you know what's taking place there, you know, if, if we put names to these people, you know, people like Travis Sipuel, mm-hmm. um, you know, and others, I think that's, that's what really matters. And, mm. and it, it gives us that, that sense of grounding that these are human beings, you know, that, that we should know about. Mm. Mm. And, and Daniel, uh, also, why is it that uh, the attitude can be, well, that's them over there and we're over here. And yet when the gospel talks about being one in Christ and all the theology that we seemingly know, is it because we have a, a, an orthodoxy uh, that uh, leads, it's supposed to lead to an orthopraxy, the way we live? And certainly orthopathy, the way we feel towards others. How how is that disconnect taking place? You think from your research? Um, I, you know, I think in, I think for for Tulsa, um, there's that sense of which um, there's a a, a self madeness that says, you know, I earn my right to do these things, you know, certainly issues of white privilege and and things like that have placed a lot of even marginalized Pentecostals in a place to say, well, we, you know, we've kind of, we've, we've sort of earned that. And then they look across the tracks and say, you know, they, they earned, you know, whatever marginalization, you know, they have. And I, and I think that that merit-based look at humanity Mm. You know, you know, for example, the, the idea that that even the pastors of Tulsa issued a statement in 1921 that said the race massacre was the fault of the Negro. You know, that, that was their fault because they were agitators, uh, because they wanted equal rights, you know, because they, um, you know, they don't like the system the way it is. They're not willing, you know, they're or they painted them in, you know, in um a lot of attitudes there about uh race during that time you know for example the kind of the white hysteria of the early uh 1900s that came out of uh the pictures uh the movies um that that sort of painted uh black men as animalistic and not to be trusted and you know black women as um you know uh uh sexually uh you know, promiscuous, and and so all of those ad, attitudes and stereotypes, and so it's kind of that that sense in Tulsa, like you know, we don't go over there because that's you know that's a foreign sort of community uh, uh, to to Tulsa, you know, to Tulsans. That's not Tulsa. You know, this is Tulsa over here. That over there is not Tulsa. They're you know that sort of the us and them, and and never really owning that. And, and, and the, the, when I read the papers uh, from that era, the Tulsa Tribune and Tulsa World, there was a lot of that, you know, front, front page would be like, you know, here's what the Negro did. And, you know, you know, all of the, you know, we made six arrests for, for uh, uh, corn gin hustling. And that's, that's just what little Africa is about, you know, these sorts of stereotypes. And, and the same thing happens today, right? You know, and and I grew up in the Tulsa, 
you know, in the 80s that we still sort of talk about North Tulsa that way. We think, you know, uh, those people up there, you know, once you get up to North Tulsa, it's a different, it's a different place. And, and those sort of ingrained stereotypes are still very much there. And as long as we have those stereotypes, um, it, it's easy to say, I don't need to know about or care about that, that, that part of town. You know, I, one of the things that uh, Scott Ellsworth mentioned in his book, um, he mentioned that in 1921, there were more black churches than white churches in Tulsa. More black churches. So the, the, the religious community of Tulsa was centered in Greenwood. You know, if you just take total number of churches and yet still there's those you know, stereotypes. And I, I, don't, I don't imagine that most of my pastor friends, especially Pentecostal pastors could name the name of a church or a pastor in North Tulsa. I, I couldn't, you know, when I started the project, I was just as ignorant as everybody else. And so, you know, that, that grieves me that we just don't know each other. You're muted, Ben. <laughs> Okay, uh, I didn't know I muted myself. I don't think I did it, but uh, Elaine, um, since you have to go soon, do you have any question or comments you want to throw at Daniel? Yeah, sure. I'm just wondering, um, you know, just based on what you have just said, what are you hoping that your book will do within the Tulsa community? Yeah, um, so. I think number one, I think it was a matter of just a justice to tell the whole story. You know, when, when I connected with some of these um, African-American pastors, um, they were thrilled that somebody was telling their story mm -hmm. because nobody, nobody's done that, right? Nobody's told the story of black Pentecostal churches. And, um, you know, many times I had information that the pastors of these churches didn't even know about their own church. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like that was a, a, just a calling from God, a gift from God to give a gift to a community that, that is, you know, in the same way that there are, uh, there are a lot of people in Tulsa who said, I grew up here and I never heard about this. I went to Booker T. Washington High School and I never heard about this, you know, and, you know, I grew up on Greenwood and I never heard about this. Um, in the same way, you know, there, Tulsa is discovering itself and learning its own history and people are coming to terms with that. And I think that this, this story for the Pentecostal community is really, um, is helping, I think helping a lot of uh, people in the black Pentecostal church just to even know their story. You know, I, you know, I, I mentioned in the book, I don't, you know, I wonder how many how much of that story was destroyed in 1921, you know, in the homes of peoples whose homes were burned to the ground or in the churches that were burned, you know, so much of their own story is not, is not even told you know, for these churches and these pastors and these individuals. And so, so, you know, that, that was one of my goals there. Um, and, and number two, my goal was to help me, first of all, to be more familiar with 
with my own community, you know. Um, everything I discovered was like, oh my goodness, I had no idea, you know, and I'm sharing it on Facebook, you know, it's like, can you believe this, right? You know, um, the, the story of Ada Lois Sipuel, who was instrumental in um, the, the previous court cases to Brown versus Board of Education was directly related to the fact that her father was pastoring in Tulsa and his home was burned to the ground and he had to leave. And, you know, desegregation in America is tied to uh, the, the race massacre in 1921. Mm. There's a direct line. And that's a Pentecostal person that came out of that you know, situation. And so you know, these stories are like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe that this was here in my hometown. Mm. And I wanted other people to have that sort of epiphany moment with me. Um, and so, you know, I, I know that my own place in South Tulsa Christianity has insulated me from knowing or caring about these stories. And so that was part of my, that's part of my real motivation. And I hope other people will join in, this, you know, and, and with that realization. And they have, I've had pastors who've read the manuscript and said, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. Like, I know where my church is and I know what. You know, I know we were involved. I know, you know, I can't believe I never knew this. And so the, those are some of my motivations there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, history plays such a huge role in all of this. You know, uh, in American history, as the story's told, you know, we I use the analogy of the Mayflower versus uh, a ship called the White Lion in 1619. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the study of Jewish, uh, the Jewish text, uh, it was Randall Robinson who stated that uh, the African Americans, we are history's amnesiacs because we live with another people's memory. And, uh, and how important it is for every people to know their own history is so important. Uh, I think of Psalm 78 talks about how each generation has to know the history of how God brought Israel out of Egypt and the story of through the wilderness, uh, how important history plays. And, and in this situation, uh, we, in our country right now, they're trying to make sure that a sanitized version of American history is being told. And the, the ugliness of Tulsa, uh, nobody wants to highlight that. And Biden came out to visit you and speak to it a little bit. But uh, it's funny how even as Christians, evangelicals and Pentecostals, and I am of the Church of God in Christ, that's my foundation, uh, how we can be so filled with God and yet at the same time have such a disdain for each other. That, 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 be, that dishevels me. I just totally don't get that. So maybe you have some insight as to why then don't we feel by the Spirit a need to gravitate towards each other? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think one of the things I've learned over the years as I've studied Pentecostalism is Pentecostalism is a culture as much as it is a set of beliefs and practices, right? So, um, you know, Pentecostalism becomes, um, starts to look a, a certain way. Uh, and, um, and so, you know, white Pentecostalism has a flavor and, <laughs> and that, that becomes enshrined 
you know, this is what it looks like to be a Pentecostal. And this is what it looks like to, you know, this is what our churches look like. This is what our community looks like and things like that. And I think, um, you know, we, we, we don't see the plethora of that, right? We don't, we don't see the community. You know, I, I feel like it's a challenge even uh, for cross-denominational ecumenical things. You know, one thing that's amazing about the Catholic charismatic group in Tulsa is that they get together on a weekly and monthly basis and they sing in the spirit together. That's what they do. They get together and they sing in the spirit. But yet, if you ask your average Pentecostal, are you closer to, you know, a fundamentalist Baptist or that Catholic over there in the Church of the Madeline, they would say fundamentalist Baptist, right? But, but that the connection is, you know, spirituality and practice over here. And so it's those sort of cultural things blind our eyes for who is, who is in, who's part of the group. And that's fundamentalism, right? Fundamentalism draws these lines and says, you know, the, this group is mine, but that group is not, you know, and, and uh, by failing to see that sort of connection, that cultural connection, we're very much in danger of that today, right? The evangelicals and Pentecostals are identifying themselves with a cultural distinction that says, you know, even, even black Pentecostals who are voting majority Democrat are seen as other. Um, even though we're, you know, if we got together and, and, and sang and shout and spoke in tongues together, we would feel a connection, but we're not going to do that because, because of the cultural sort of identity that goes with that. And I think that that has very much been a, a part of, of Pentecostalism to see itself as a culturalistic identity that cares about these certain things and, mm -hmm. and, 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 and gives us complete sort of justification to be able to separate myself from that group. Mm. Anybody else want to jump in there? Well, Daniel, Rob Shank here. Uh, first of all, bravo uh, on your work and uh, to you for producing it, but also to your publisher. And I'm sorry I don't have the book in my possession. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it as soon as I can get to it. And uh, I do uh, something on all of my platforms here in Washington, D.C. called Tuesday Titles, and you're coming up as a Tuesday title very Thanks. soon. But uh, I'm curious, who, who is publishing you? Yeah, so um, so I, I contacted Seymour, William Seymour Press, which is the press out of uh, William Seymour College in, in, uh, in uh, Baltimore, Maryland area. Um, Dr. Estrella Alexander is a very well-known um, scholar and uh, has done, you know, the dictionary of Pan-African theology. And so um, as I, as I started the project, you know, I was curious who I, I could go with. Um, but when I really got into the Black Pentecostal history, I, I knew it needed to go to Seymour Press. Uh, you know, I, I, I knew that, that I needed the expertise of, um, of Dr. Alexander um, to be able to help position me in how I framed this conversation. And so, you know, Lois was, was very instrumental in that as well, really helped me think through how to, you know, you know, making sure I've, you know, categorized and, and talked about different groups, you know, in an appropriate way. And so, so I reached out to, to see more press and they said, you know, they'd very much like to have it. And so, so I've been working with them and, and they were able to publish it for me. 
And well, let's, I'm going to do everything I can to make it a blockbuster so that we reward Seymour uh, Press for publishing it, uh, but also shame all the white evangelical publishers who wouldn't touch something like this because it's too controversial. And I know all of them all too well uh, to know this would be dicey for many of them. But my question, though, is a different question for you. When we talk about the full gospel, we talk about a Holy Spirit empowered and miraculous transformation. I mean, Pentecostal people, we are all big testimony people. You'll hear Pentecostals constantly talk about the revolutionary change in their lives when either they were saved or filled with the Holy Spirit and how it transformed them. So my curiosity here, by the way, uh, this doesn't seem so far away from me. My mother was born in 1921. So this is in my mother's own lifetime. And I have to say, I did hear about it. Uh, I've visited Tulsa over a 40 year preaching career, many times preaching. And, and uh, I heard about it from uh, a well-known Christian philanthropist in your city, Hans Helmerich, uh, uh, recently retired, I think, president of Helmerich and Payne Oil and Gas. And he told me the story of the massacre uh, back in the early 80s. So, and, and I remember saying, why don't more people know about this? And he didn't have an answer for that. Nobody had an answer for that entirely. So my question is this, why in Holy Spirit powered, full gospel transformational churches, did the, that part of the gospel not reach the souls and consciences of the white Pentecostals of that period? So that first they could see the deception, uh, you know, how alienation of the other is contrary to the gospel. Uh, they could not see that the power of the gospel transcends those racial, cultural, socioeconomic differences and all the rest. I mean, in other words, why didn't they get the message of the Good Samaritan here? Uh, did they miss it? Did they cut it out of their Bibles? Did they say that doesn't really matter or Jesus didn't really say that or he didn't mean it? And by the way, the Samaritans were really, uh, you know, white Pentecostals. What happened here? Why, why didn't they get the message that this was an egregious sin and feel convicted about it? Gosh, I, I wish I knew the answer to that question, you know, I really tried to, I, I tried to understand that. Um, and, and I may, I may, I posit some things uh, in, in the book, uh, you know, obviously unfamiliarity is a big one. Um, you know, one of the things that's really interesting is you look at the language of um, the, the, the riot. And to call it a riot is because of that sort of embedded belief that the, the people who were, who were affected, um, it was a matter of law and order. You know, that was an unruly place. 
and it was perfectly justified uh, to lash back at these unruly people. Um, and so whether it was the St. Louis riot, riot, it was a massacre there in St. Louis in 1917, you know, Pentecostals were commenting on that, you know, like, these are signs of the times, look how bad people are, you know, without, without seeing themselves in, in that spot. And so, you know, I think there's some of that um, as well. And, and I think that, I mean, there's a lot of evangelicals that have rejected the idea of white privilege. Um, but, the, but I think it's a large part of it. I, um, if I'm a white Pentecostal, I don't have to comment on it. You know, Rob, it's down the street from me, but I don't have to worry about that. Um, you know, I have my, we can gather the next Sunday and scream and shout and, and hoop and holler. And it didn't affect me because I'm not involved in that, you know, community. And um, so, so I don't have to bear that burden um, because my culture said that that part of the track is different than me. And I don't, I don't have to burden myself with that. And, and I don't think people understand that, especially like taking on a project like that, the burden that comes with it and facing those own realities in yourself. It's a hard thing to face the reality. It's a, it's a hard thing to confront yourself. That's hard discipleship stuff, mm -hmm. right? Is to face, face your own sort of feelings about that. Um, you know, when I was, when I was a children's pastor at a, a, an AG church in South Tulsa, we used to do missions trips to North Tulsa. Um, and I never thought a word about, I never thought anything about that, right? Of course we do missions trips to, to North Tulsa. Those are people to be reached instead of the fact that there were more churches up there than there were in South Tulsa. You know, like those are not people to be reached, those are people to be known and, and learned from and fellowshiped with, you know? And so those are, those are the things that I think dri drove that back then, right? If you see that community as a, a you know, the Greenwood community as an other community and, um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't have any, uh, the, I think the early Pentecostal sort of um, impetus that black and white were coming together in Azusa, I think is one of the most overplayed ideas in Pentecostal history. Because it took about three, it took about two years before a couple white people tried to take over that mission from, <laughs> from the black man who's getting all the, you know, the credit for it. And so, um, you know, the, it, it, it's sort of the whole part of our story that continued um, and has continued that, you know, as long as I can be in charge, you know, I'm okay with interracial stuff if I can be in charge of it. Um, and, you know, and when, when we need that black voice, I want to bring that black voice in uh, mm -hmm. to serve my needs. And, you know, that's our history. That's what we continue to do is to sort of, you know, not see us as one, but, you know, think that, you know, I get to be in charge of all these conversations.
So, you know, this critical race theory, well, you know, I get to be in charge of the conversation, not you. You know, um, if it's uh, history, Tulsa history, I get to be in charge of the conversation. We're going to control how this narrative is, is struck. And so, you know, the fact <clears throat> that white Pentecostals didn't talk about it uh, is because they, they didn't have to. That's correct. Daniel, I'm sorry, man. Daniel, I seen I did read your book, which was a great read. But I'm I'm quoting you right now from your book, one of your books. You said, uh, you said that uh, Tulsa's shame can be summed up in the last words of Thursday's editorial of the Oklahoman. This is white man's country. And then you also, I quote you as saying later on in that same chapter, at the end, Tulsa's shame was about white dominance over a prosperous black community. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's like that root of feeling superior has just never left. Well, it left the shores of Europe and came to the United States, but it's never been dealt with. And when you think about awakenings or revivals taking place, I was saying to a very close a white brother of mine that I've known for 45 years, that I'm looking for a revival, an outpouring of God's spirit that actually lays acts to the root of this, that this is not white man's country, this is Native American Indian country, <laughs> you know? And so it's like many have chosen to believe a lie instead of the truth. And I know it's our propensity, all of us, that we want to some way uh, feel that we're superior to others, whether it's education, whether it's money. I mean, that's a that's a common human problem. But in ethnicities, you know, it plays out uh, in the present situation. And so somehow, I was with Vincent Sinan when uh, in Ethio Clemens when uh, the two were trying to come together, put the whole thing together. I was at that meeting. And it's funny how we how we can have little meetings and then it goes away and then you got a little meeting and then it goes away. And and I guess and I'll, this is my last thing uh, in in William Seymour. Um, he the, the story is told and I can't remember who told it to me, but a white gentleman was going to drive out to California because he heard what God was doing out there. And when he got out there, he realized there's a black man up front. And he went back to his room. Was like, oh no, I, no, I don't want anything to do with this. But he wanted the power of the Holy Spirit. The testimony goes. And when he got down, now this is what he he went back the next day and had William Seymour lay hands on him, filled with the Holy Ghost. But this is what he said. This is the thing that caught me. He said, before I could go to that meeting again, I had to crucify my prejudice. Mm. Crucify. And, you know, the scripture in the book of Acts, God deals with his leaders in that scripture. You know, Peter, get it. I mean, come on, understand what's going on here. And, and I guess what Rob is asking, too, and, and I know that Sterling thinks along these lines that if, if God is so moving, it must just be a grieving of the Holy Spirit, a resistance to that, to allowing the Spirit of God to really speak to that area. We've got to be resisting it. Uh, standing against it, we won't give yeah. into it, as we all can do in different ways. But on this issue, I feel like so many are just, they just won't hear it. You know, it's a cognitive dissonance. I mean, it just troubles any soul. It's got to be troubling, but nevertheless, won't yield to it because 
we just don't want to give up that high ground. Yeah. You know, one thing that I think that's interesting is that <clears throat> um, to, to be fair to Tulsa um, is that there is there's always pockets who have that experience, right? I mean, so, uh, you know, were there people during that time, Pentecostal during that time that went to help? You know, there could have been. We just don't know the stories, you know, um, and then we have stories like that, you know, the uh, people who go to the one of one story from Tulsa is that one of the pastors um, of the of the AG church there, who was a denominational official for the assemblies. He actually first came into Pentecost with um, a, a, uh, a black woman Pentecostal preacher in Topeka. And. Um, he was so offended by the fact that she would be telling him anything that he turned off Pentecostalism for a long time and God had to break his heart. And when he broke his heart, that he was that prejudiced and racist, then he could receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that that's that's what should take place. Right. I mean, that's the sort of, you know, that's the sort of path that we would expect. And I think it does happen. You know what I mean? I think those stories are, are there. They're not always the stories that we tell. It's not always the, the 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 bigger narrative, but I but I, I think it, I think it happens. It, it happens in me. It happens in others, um, and so those stories are worth telling as well. And that that's why I wanted I wanted to tell Jonathan Ellsworth's story because I think it was important in there. Um, but then you also have a story of um, uh, a story of Bixby that I didn't put in the book because it wasn't related to Pentecostalism necessarily. But there was a trainload of, of survivors that came out of the massacre that went south to the suburb of Bixby where I live. When they got off the train, everybody in, in, in uh, Bixby welcomed them in, gave them food, gave them shelter, gave them a place to live or whatever. Um, and the Ku Klux Klan was pretty common in, in, um, in Bixby at the time. But the, the author of the book on Bixby history told me that by welcoming those survivors in, the Ku Klux Klan was finished in, in Bixby after that. Mm. You know, that, that welcoming. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit can give you the, the, the capacity for that, but it's the human relation connection that will do it. You know, I, I think that's, that's the ultimate problem uh, for me is when you know people, when you have friends, when you have individuals you're interacting with, that's when the power of the Holy Spirit does break down those barriers and does do that work in our hearts. And I think the isolation of the white community has been the biggest bar barrier to that, uh, to not melt those walls, that self-sufficiency that, you know, uh, I think that that's what's that's what's hindering it. So it's, it's not that the the gospel doesn't have power to change or the Holy Spirit doesn't melt our hearts, but until you're in relationship with somebody who's different from you, it gives the Holy Spirit nothing to work with to be able to break down those barriers, you know. And so, so if there's anything we can do, and I, I've just this has been important for me and my family, my kids. I just want to take them and give them positions to be in places where they can learn stories, you know, like. Clifton Talbert is a close friend of mine, uh, 
Pulitzer Prize nominated author of Once Upon a Time When We Were Colored. And uh, he's a good friend of mine, spirit-filled man. And, you know, my kids know him and we watched his movie. And then they go to church and they, they talk with him after they've seen his life story. You know what I mean? So I think that's it. That's where the Holy Spirit give, gives us something to, to be able to work with. Mm-hmm. Uh, another issue, Daniel, that um, is brought out in the Tulsa, and, I, and I, I agree with you, Daniel, Tulsa is not the only city in America that's had a problem. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, but, but it, you know, it's highlighted at this particular moment, and certainly as a result of you writing the book. But uh, I think that another thing we should speak to on this program is the idea that this all began, the, the massacre of Tulsa began when it was assumed that a black guy uh, either raped or touched a white woman. Yeah. And that's it. I mean, that, that did it right there uh, yeah. because there's this root, at the root of all this is that white men didn't mind raping black women during slavery because you know they're like second-class citizens anyhow and they're very lustful and so they could rape them over and over again but with the change they did not want to see a black man touch a white woman because the white woman is supposed to speak of purity and everything that's good and etc so that really is the rub and Bob Jones University was all about interracial dating. Couldn't do that. Can't do that. And, uh, you know, please don't. And if you bring the black and white church together, some black guy's going to date a white girl. I mean, can we, can we handle that? So I posed the question to you, Daniel. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's, that is the reality. So historically, um, I've, I've done some research on, on that as well. Historically, um, you had around 1910, a, um, a act that was called the Man Act, which was designed to target human trafficking across state lines. Because during that time, there was a, there was a hysteria. Uh, so the, the whole idea of somebody being colored um, actually arose in this period, 1910 and, or 1900 1910. The colorization of America took place then. Um, and before that, it was sort of nationality. Um, but, but the idea was that, um, you know, that these black men were preying on white women. And so you had, you had purity films uh, talking about, you know, don't let your women go to the picture show because they could be abducted. And uh, there was a whole, there was a whole stream of, of, uh, of, of, uh, of propaganda about that. And that sort of whole, you know, purity culture, um, you know, don't go to the movies, don't go to uh, the dance halls because you could be sucked into uh, these things. And so that was targeted towards black men who were uh, seen to be as over-sexualized, you know. And so so all a black man had to do in 1921 is bump into a woman. And all of that sort of racial, social hysteria was applied to that one man. 
And so the lynchings that took place in Oklahoma, you know, 1917, you know, a lot all throughout the South uh, was was fueled by that. And, and Pentecostals also talked about those issues. You know, I, I did a whole paper at SPS last year about uh, white the white slave trade is what they called it, where you know black men would take white women and, and put them into prostitution. And uh, you know, there's all kinds of you know things that 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 Pentecostals picked up on on that, you know, that, that, that scare, to be scared of black men. And that's still true today, right? I mean, we're taught to be scared of black men. Police are taught to be scared of black men. You know, your children are taught to be scared of black men. Um, you know, those types of things are, are still, still very much there. And mm -hmm. You know, it's it's embedded in that superiority and power. You know that that takes place from uh, from from that sort of white uh, females. You know, females are vulnerable, and so we need to protect them from those. You know, from those people. Yes. Lewis and um, Sterling hasn't got in yet. So, Lewis, you want to say something, and then we get Sterling in before our time runs out. Yeah. I just want to thank you, Daniel, for your hard work and for your willingness to come here and share this with us. And, you know, I have so many things. I'll try to wrap it in one minute. But um, I, I love that your your book is about revival and the massacre, that the title um, of uh, Pentecost and Tulsa, the revivals and race massacre that shaped the Pentecostal movement, that, the, that both of these things shaped it. But my hope is that revival shaping Tulsa, revival shaping America, um, those twin events wouldn't just be a thing of the past, but that it would be a part of the future, like what Elaine's question had to do with, you know, what do we see coming out of this? I think knowing about revivals in the past and what that uh, can, you know, entailed can give us hope for um, a real revival, a, 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 the, you know, fundamentally based in repentance, like like Van said about putting the the axe to the to the root of this mm -hmm. in our country, and um, so I, I I love that revival thread that you've carried through, but also the idea of of these aren't people to be reached; these are people to be known. The the stories, I was so moved this week with the story, the hundred and seven year old woman, the oldest survivor of the massacre, Viola Fletcher, who testified before Congress and even to this day has, has felt the impact in terms of her poverty and her opportunities and not going beyond the fourth grade and all these things because of that moment. And there, there are these, you've brought out stories in this book. We could, we could talk and talk and talk and I, I would love to do this longer, but the stories, the people that, that you talk about, I think is such a powerful part of the testimony here. You know, when I, when I led a Holocaust studies tour to, to Europe, it's not just looking at the camps and the destruction, but what was lost? What was the society? What was the culture, Jewish culture in Europe that has been fundamentally lost? And by going back, you have tried to tried to show some of that the beauty of the culture a lot of people talk about black wall street but the church culture is is just as important in this story even more important i would say um though those two things should go hand in hand that flourishing not only economically but spiritually 
that is part of my hope for for the future the reconciliation there's no reconciliation without truth i you know I, and those two things have to go hand in hand so i appreciate story revival testimony knowing and relationship and so i don't really have a question i just want to say a big huge thank you to what you have done here and my hope for what it'll be for the future yeah, yeah thank you I, you know i i think I tried to include as many details about people's own personal experience of baptism in the Holy Spirit, you know, because that those are the things that can connect us, you know what I mean? And so if, if you can hear the story that of somebody, you know, I was saved and healed in this meeting, you know, and then you think, oh, well, that's similar to my story. It, it's another point of connection, you know, and so the testimony is so important and to bring us together for sure. Yeah. Sterling, you're muted. <laughs> Unmute. You got it. Okay. Daniel, um, you said in your book that um, in my world, ignorance of people of color has been the norm. Yeah. I, I, I thought that was a very interesting statement and a very um, telling statement. Your next statement, though, is the one that sort of comes. It says, confronting this norm has motivated me to bring the story of the Tulsa's Black Pentecostal Church into the forefront. And it reminded me of, uh, of Paul's um, statement in Romans 10, where he said, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. From being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. And so God's people cannot achieve a just society simply through human zeal, through human intellect, through human enthusiasm. We have to receive righteousness from God through faith and, and, and proclaiming, preaching, uh, teaching the gospel must lead to a transformed people who can who can uh, thereby uh, be a transformed society. So so without without true evangelism, the call for a new just society is hollow. Um, so so as I look back on on all that's going on, I was born and raised in, in Louisiana, and uh, Louisiana is of course a, a country all in it, in its own. But uh, the lynchings there was a norm, and uh, and everything that that you saw in Tulsa uh, was, was normative, uh, except that there are those people who call themselves the Pentecostals and who call themselves evangelicals and even those who call themselves fundamentalists. But I don't think they had the compass on the right God. I, I, don't, I, don't, I believe Paul uh, summed it up. They had a zeal, but not according to the knowledge of the true God. Mm. I'm done. No, I think that I, I think that's I think that's right because the God of Pentecost is a is a different God in many times than the God that uh, that that we're worshiping on a Sunday morning that is okay with all of that. Um, you know, the God that um, that says. I, I don't need to know, I don't need to care, I don't need to worry myself, uh, yeah. or worse, yeah. um, that they're wrong because they, you know, um, they're not worthy of, 
of anything because they have a different mindset or different thought or different color or whatever. And yeah. th those are different gods, you know, <laughs> they, they're passionate, you know, they're passionate about it. Um, and, and I, so I think that we have to confront that. I think Pentecostal history has a tendency to sanitize itself just as much as um, American history does. Yes. And so, you know, um, I think that there's going to be people who read my book that says, you didn't go far enough. And, and I know that, right? I, I know that. And that's okay. Uh, because I wasn't really trying to go, go far enough. I was just trying to tell the story and trying to, trying to frame it the best that I can and try to understand it the best that I can. And so, you know, um, I realize that. And then there's going to be some people who say, well, you went too far, you know, <laughs> you know, in, in how you characterize some of that. And, you know, maybe that's true as well. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know, but I hope what, I, I think it was John Hope Franklin, who's a, uh, one of the most uh, important historians um, in American history, who, who grew up in Tulsa. Mm -hmm. uh, he said that history is the conscience of the country and historians are the conscious keepers of the country. And so, you know, I, I felt like it was my responsibility to tell the whole story. That, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to tell the whole story so that the picture is bigger. So God has something to work with in people's lives to, to think, okay, maybe, maybe the God I've been worshiping is just sort of my cultural God. And, you know, I've been really passionate about that cultural God, but it's not based in reality or truth, like you said, you know, and so I, I hope that that helps with that. Mm -hmm. I, th I think you did a great job, by the way, and I, and I do appreciate it. And I'd like to join with Lois and the rest of the panel in saying thank you for this work. Uh, it's a brave work, very courageous work. And uh, so I, I deeply appreciate what you're doing. <laughs> thank you. Thank you too, Daniel, for what's been done in the panel today. You've done an excellent job in presenting this. I've got the book. I haven't read it like uh, Van yet, but I'm going to read it. I've kind of skimmed over it, but it's it's a great read. And uh, some of the things you brought up today were great in terms of what we were going to discuss, which we had enough time to get back into all of it. Maybe we'll have you back and um, and get another discussion on it. But our time is about out. So Van, you want to... Um, you ready to wrap us up here? Sure, uh, Lois, I hope you heard Daniel, uh, uh, Dennis try to draw Daniel into another session. Which I would, did, <laughs> I did. It's usually Van that gets you and then you can't, get, yeah. you can't let go, <laughs> Daniel. <laughs> no. We have to get you again. <laughs> we got little fishing rods on the other end of the Zoom screen. <laughs> no, it's just a great book. And I'm, I'm sure Dr. Alexandra, I'm sure she was blessed by it. Because I remember being in an SBS meeting where she made the challenge like, you know, William Seymour can no longer be a footnote, a, pair, a, a line, a sentence. We got to really bring it out. And she was frustrated by nobody responding to that. And then here you come along, Daniel. And so you, you, you've made us all proud to wow. take, have the courage to bring out what you brought out. And uh, you may not have gone all the way with it, but you've gone a long ways, a long ways in revealing the truth and we're, we're all edified and blessed. And I was blessed reading your book, 
hearing our story. So yeah. thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, we're going to put that on Facebook and Dennis is going to make sure you're advertised and, and uh, it's there already. <laughs> yeah. Rob Shank is going to put it out in his circles. And mm -hmm. so I hope it gets a lot of press, a lot of press. And um, just thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, so I hope fun. our audience was blessed by what you've heard. If you have questions, you can write straight talk live, or you can write to Daniel uh, personally and uh, continue the dialogue. But during this celebration, this uh, commemoration of the uh, Tulsa massacre, I hope that we can all make it a teachable moment to move the church further down the road to unity. That's the main goal. Make the stories a teachable moment to bring us all closer to the foot of the cross together by the power of Almighty God. So the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon each one of you and give you shalom in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen, amen. See you next time. Thank you so much. We're off and now recording has stopped.